Hi, this is James Barris. I hope you find this talk supports you in your practice. If you'd like to support my teaching, you can use the donate button underneath my picture on Dharma Seed to do that. Your support is greatly appreciated. <clears throat> Wired for sound. So you made it through today. <laughs> it was a tough day. <clears throat> it's been cold. I just want to first acknowledge everybody's commitment and sincerity and the fact that you're still here. You, know, you must have some commitment. <laughs> yeah, real yogis, Jack says. Hmm. <clears throat> Well, being um, Easter Sunday, which is a holiday that for me is about um, awakening and freedom, waking up from our, our sleep into a greater possibility of the, the highest freedom, I wanted to talk tonight about the process of purification that leads to the highest awakening. Last time when I spoke a few nights ago, and I talked about the grace, and I mentioned about that, that teacher who said, yes, you're neck deep in grace, neck deep in grace. I was... I was alluding to the fact that there are no accidents that I was there or that you are here. This is an amazing coming together of events and wholesome actions and good karma for us all to be able to practice together. The universe doesn't happen haphazardly in random events. There is a natural order and natural flow to our life, to our way of being, to the unfolding in a more universal sense beyond our own story as well. So one very important piece in our understanding of this unfolding is having some sense of how we got here and what can we do to continue to unfold towards the highest happiness. Last night Carol spoke about intentions. And intentions are really the key to what we are creating in our lives. Intentions are the the critical element in the lawful unfolding of karma. The word karma means action. And simply put, it's that actions have consequences. Sometimes when I reflect on my life 
in my life's journey and I think of all the different places that I was at a crossroads that I could have gone one way or another where there was some deep pain or deep fear or insecurity or tragedy that could just as easily turn the mind towards bitterness or contraction or hopelessness that somehow miraculously led to another unfolding. It's truly amazing. When you think for a moment in your own life, all the different events and circumstances and and difficulties and challenges that you have had to experience that somehow didn't deter you, but perhaps were launching pads for the next movement in your growth and awakening. It's extraordinary, extraordinarily good karma, especially when we think of so many people who go the other route. <clears throat> As I say, this is not an accident. There is a path of purification that leads us that continues to lead us on, that creates good circumstances and the possibility of hearing and practicing the Dharma. The Buddha, beautiful um, image, he talks about the purification of gold, like the purification of our minds and our hearts. He says, a goldsmith takes some gold or some gold ore and many, many times repeats washing and, um, and heating until the gross impurities are gone and then the coarser uh, impurities and then the finer ones and then finally many, many times until the dross is purified as well until there is gold, brilliant. And he talks the same way about our minds. I'll just read to you from Sutta. He says, Similarly, there, similarly, in the case of a monk or a nun devoted to higher mental training, there are in this person gross impurities, namely unskillful conduct in deeds, words, and thoughts, such conduct the renunciate gives up, puts away, makes an end of, relinquishing. When having abandoned these, there are still impurities of moderate degree that cling to a yogi devoted to higher training, namely sensuous, angry, or violent thoughts. Such thoughts the yogi gives up, puts them away, relinquishes them. Abandoning these, there are still some subtle impurities that cling to a renunciate, namely thoughts about family or home or reputation. Abandoning these, there may still remain thoughts about higher mental states, experiences in meditation. Little by little, as the mind becomes firm within, settles down, becomes unified and concentrated, 
there is realized the highest knowledge, directing the mind in that way, achieving the deepest kind of freedom. So this is a process. I want to say, as I talk about it in this linear fashion, there's also the truth that awakening happens in every moment, or is possible in every moment. Now you hear the talk of it being a gradual process sometimes, or a sudden immediate process some other times. Both are true, because in the moment that you are completely present without any clinging or identification or condemning, this is a moment of true freedom. And yet, as you might have noticed if you've had those moments, you forget afterwards. And so, over time, there is more and more likelihood of that remembering until when one is fully awake, one doesn't forget. There are forces of purity called paramis. That means forces of purification that create good conditions and the, um, uh, all the gifts of practice. There is the purity or a parami of conduct and the parami of wisdom. And there are three purifying actions that create these, um, these great gifts that allow us to awaken. The, there are two associated with the parami of conduct, and that is generosity and virtue. And then there is one associated with the parami or purification that comes from wisdom, that is bhavana or meditation. Dana, sila, bhavana. Those are the, these three kinds of um, purifying actions. <coughs> The purity of conduct that comes from the generosity and the, um, the virtuous conduct leads to wonderful surroundings, to nice conditions in our life, to um, good friends, not having to, um, to be too fearful in, uh, in our surroundings. And also it leads to the possibility of hearing the Dharma. And when you think about it, it's wonderful to have the great conduct, the great circumstances, but if you haven't heard the Dharma, it can be a kind of double-edged sword. You can have all these super um, results of good karma, but be grasping on for more and more and more. So without that... um, continued unfolding that leads us to a deeper sense of what freedom is, we can easily get into grasping. Dana, okay, which is the expression of generosity or service. It's a force of non-greed in the mind. It's the ability to actually let go because there's not the confusion that there won't be enough. There is simply opening up to this next moment. 
we get very frightened <clears throat> in thinking that what will happen if I let go now? I'll lose the very thing I cherish. And then what? Then my life will be empty or there won't be anything to fill it up. And it's this trick that our minds play with us that keeps us bound. Something that I find helpful to do. I'll just share with you a, a, another little exercise. Right now, just imagine something in your hand. Put your finger in your hand and close your hand imagining that what's in it is something that you cherish deeply, that you certainly wouldn't want to let go of. And just imagine that if you hold it tightly, you'll be able to maintain it. So squeeze. And squeeze a bit tighter, because it might slip away any moment, you never know. Squeeze tighter. Tighter. Okay, just let it go. And feel what it's like to open up your hand. Feel what it's like to trust that it's okay to let go. It's painful to hold on that tightly, isn't it? But we think if we hold on, maybe then we'll be able to control our lives. Maybe then we'll be able to create some happiness or maintain what's here. And it's the very holding on that's causing that pain and suffering. Then the, the paradox is that when you let go and you can share, it feels really good to share, doesn't it? Isn't that strange? It's one thing to enjoy your own good circumstances, but if you don't have people to share it with, well, it's kind of limited. We want to share. Think of the times when I've gone to the ice cream store and I'm, I really have a great flavor in my hand, right? And it just feels so good. I'm with somebody who maybe doesn't want to doesn't want to eat some ice cream then. I can remember Tom saying, God, it's so good, you have to take a bite. You know? Maybe not a big bite, but, but a bite. Right? You know that feeling, just like when you see a great movie or a good book, you just want to share. It feels so good to share. It's wonderful. The Buddha said that if we knew the power of generosity, of giving, we wouldn't go through a meal without sharing it. Because the karmic result of generosity is abundance coming back to us. Think about somebody in your life who's very generous. Think of how you feel just thinking of them. How are you around them? You're kind of protective of your stuff? Probably not. For me, I just want to share back. It touches me. There's a direct result of the generous act. It comes back to them. Think of how you are around somebody who's maybe a little bit insecure and, and uh, nervous about sharing and has trouble with it. It can be a painful place to be in the mind. What does it elicit, elicit back? out of us. Do we want to share? 
maybe if we have compassion and wisdom, we can move beyond that initial response of some reluctance. So there is the, the, the future result of abundance coming back and the direct karmic result of the joy of giving, the joy of sharing. And it can be cultivated. It can be cultivated in all of us. The, the Buddha talked about different levels of giving, of um, what he called beggarly giving or friendly giving or royal giving, queenly or kingly giving. Beggarly giving is where you deliberate a lot. Well, maybe I will, maybe I won't. You know, they're coming for the pickup at Goodwill and should I give this one? I might need it. Uh, Oh, okay. Give. And then friendly giving where you're just spontaneously wanting to give what you use yourself. And then royal giving where you give the best of what you have. And he said, wherever you are, just practice giving in that arena. Don't beat yourself up for not being a kingly or a queenly giver. Sometimes it's not appropriate to give when you're going to be resenting it afterwards or there's a, a, a something precious that, uh, that perhaps is best be kept. But generally, when we give, most of the time, we don't usually dwell on it and say, oh, I shouldn't have given that. I shouldn't have given to that charity. Yeah. I might need the dollar I give to somebody who's in need who I pass by. It doesn't usually work that way. In fact, the karmic law is as you give, you have more space to receive. The universe provides. We can give in resources. We can give in energy. We can give in our caring. That's the most profound giving, where we're actually present. We're really here for somebody. We really express our connection with them. Because all the stuff that we give is just the currency of our caring. I've told this story that some of you have heard on one retreat where I was uh, washing dishes on a three-month course and, and feeling kind of... Uh, I was the pot washer all by myself. I was the pot washer and they assigned that to me. Um, feeling kind of... They didn't wait for volunteers, you know, like here. And uh, I f- was feeling kind of sorry for myself. And, you know, there I am washing these pots and I want to get to the next sitting. And, and out, of the, um, out of the staff room comes the manager who looks at me and sees me washing the pots diligently. And he gives me, the, gives me something in tin foil that I quickly get through my pots to see what it's. He says, here, this is for you. You're doing good work. And I opened it up afterwards, and there was this big piece of cheesecake. Big, right? (laughs) And at this point in the retreat, an extra slice of bread was a big deal for me at tea time, right? So there's a natural feeling of generosity that comes out of practice. And besides, it was big. So I just decided (laughs) I couldn't quite 
eat the whole thing by myself. And I put it in a few bowls of some people. I broke it into a few pieces and put, put them in three other bowls and I had my, my piece uh, ready to eat. I waited at tea time as each person came and their mouth dropped it as they saw. You get to know whose bowl is where, you know, there's not much else to do on a three-month course. <laughs> and, uh, and what happened was one person took her piece and broke it in two, and I saw her put it in another bowl. I ate my piece very mindfully, I can assure you. It was delicious. It lasted for about, oh, a minute and a half or so. <laughs> but why I tell the story is that 16 years later, I feel a connection with five people because of one piece of cheesecake. The manager and the three people that I gave it to and then the one person who uh, got another piece. One piece of cheesecake, isn't that interesting? The stuff that we share is just the currency of our caring. It's very powerful. And there are many ways to share. There's sharing socially, politically, um, familiarly with our friends. There's sharing of our resources. The leader of the Sarvodia movement in Sri Lanka um, Ariaratna, he says, when you give people the opportunity to experience dana, it's so empowering and fulfilling that they experience the joy for themselves and they want to continue doing it. And so he creates these situations where villagers come, uh, come together and create something for, for the whole village. And just creating a situation where they can contribute to each other. Or as Schweitzer said, those who know true happiness are those who've tasted the joy of service. Our practice can also be done from that same place of generosity. Besides practicing for ourselves, we can think of our practice as a gift for the benefit of all beings. And that's a wonderful place a, a wonderful motivation to come from in practice. This is from a Tibetan teacher, Nushal um, Kempo, who says, when we do things with selfish, narrow, egotistical motivation, they're very limit, limited and probably temporary. There is a Tibetan saying that everything rests on the tip of one's motivation this indicates the significance in every moment of cultivating altruistic, selfless intention, bodhicitta, it's called. Endowed with such a luminous heart, bodhi mind, even the smallest words, deeds, and actions one accomplishes have vast and beneficial implications. One can work with anything and integrate it into the spiritual practice path through pure mind and good heart, always from the point of view of benefiting others, the very heart essence of Buddha Dharma is to benefit others, bodhicitta. We are not practicing for ourselves alone. Since everybody is involved, 
is included in the great scope of our perfectly pure motivation, meditations, and prayers. The natural outflow of so-called solitary meditation or prayer is the spontaneous benefit for others. It's like the rays of a sun, rays which sooner or later spontaneously reach out. This good heart, pure heart, vast and open mind, is what is called in Tibetan white mind, semkarpo, meaning pure, vast, and open heart. This is innate bodhicitta. It is not something foreign to us, as we well know, yet it's something we could relate to more, cultivate, generate, and embody. We talk about vast and profound teachings of Dharma. Without this goodness of heart, this unselfishness, it is mere chatter, gossip, and rationalization. Imagine coming in and sitting down, not just so you can feel some reduction of stress or some kind of good feeling for a few moments, but with the intention of purifying your heart so you can bring a bit more wisdom and kindness into the world. That tremendously up-levels the whole process. Dana. So this leads to good conditions. Another parami, or force of purification, comes is the sila action. Again, this is with the parami of conduct, but the action coming from virtuous conduct, from morality, virtue, non-harming, it's incredibly strong. And the Buddha talked about this as being the foundation of our practice. As you probably know, the Eightfold Path, it's sometimes called a threefold training. Sila, Samadhi, Panya. Sila, right speech, right action, right livelihood, is really the basis, the the ground out of which we can practice. Because if our lives in the world are not in harmony, it's very, very difficult to find some inner peace. If we're ripping people off or telling a lot of lies or doing things that are harmful to people, well, you probably noticed as you have sat here for these days, images, memories of things that you've done in the past that Uh, that you regret or that keep on coming up, it's natural that they come up when you don't distract yourself because those actions have their karmic result. And one of the results is that we remember them and feel out of sorts about them. In the Buddhist psychology, there are a number of mental factors, some wholesome factors, some unwholesome factors. In the wholesome set of factors, there's two factors called hiri and otapam, which translate as moral shame and moral dread. Now, those sound like pretty heavy terms, moral shame and moral dread. What that means is 
there's a place inside of us, we call it usually conscience, that knows, that feels somehow when we're out of sorts and out of alignment. And it's a darn good thing that we have that, isn't it? Imagine if we didn't. Imagine if we had no conscience at all. Imagine if there wasn't something that stopped us from, that, from doing things that were hurtful, that just put a little bit of the brake on that says, wait a second, what am I doing here? Sometimes we listen to it, sometimes we don't. But if we get honest with ourselves and really listen carefully, there's a place in us that knows. And it's essential that we see the power of our actions if we do this practice because we see more and more what we are sowing for the future. I heard the Dalai Lama once talk about uh, an understanding uh, between karma and emptiness. You know, to understand the law of cause and effect and then the understanding of the deepest wisdom and um, uh, anatta, the selflessness that has been spoken about a bit. And he said, if you had to choose between understanding of karma and understanding of emptiness, go for the karma. Because if you understand emptiness, and you don't pay attention to karma, there is a kind of, there's a danger that your actions will lead you to unwholesome circumstances in the future. And unless your understanding is complete, in which case the natural outflow of that completion, that complete understanding is skillful action, you are causing the seeds for more suffering for yourself. But if you truly act with a deep understanding of karma, this will lead to the higher wisdom, the understanding of emptiness. The Buddha has a beautiful phrase. He calls it the bliss of blamelessness. You know that feeling when we have nothing to hide, nothing to feel contracted about. There's a kind of openness and a, a shining that says, ah, yeah, I'm clean. You know, not with pride, but just that we don't need to feel we'll be found out. I remember on one, um, one three-month course, it was, uh, it was my second three-month course, and it was a, it was a pretty... Um, it was a pretty powerful retreat for me. And when I came back, people asked the question that Guy mentioned the other day, well, how was it? You know? <laughs> and it was too complicated for me to go into it all. And besides, most people didn't want to hear the whole story. But when I summed it up in a few words, I said, you know, um, one thing I got from this retreat, it's not worth the ripples in my mind to do things that will cause me some pain or to cause others pain. It was just that 
feeling that understanding of the bliss of blamelessness, it's not worth the ripples in your mind. As you've seen, probably a few ripples come and go. And it's interesting how even when we know, even when we know better, there's a place in us out of old habits that gets caught in doing unskillful things. Isn't that amazing? That mysterious moment where you realize you're about to say something that you're going to regret. Or about to go for something that you're going to just feel like beating yourself up afterwards for. Or you just let the laziness overcome you when there's something that really needs to be taken care of and you know you're going to be sorry later and rushing around like a mad person to get it all done. That mysterious moment where you know better and you still do it. Why do we keep doing that? Why do we keep creating suffering? We don't quite see clearly enough. We don't look carefully at the consequences of our actions and we, we deceive ourselves thinking, oh well, it'll be okay. Now this is not said so that we can feel really lousy about it when we blow it because there's plenty of opportunity to beat yourself up. And I'm somebody who's somewhat of an authority on guilt. (laughs) So I speak with, with some experience. Guilt has zero value in this process because when you feel guilty then you really want to punish yourself. Yeah, I'm a rotten person. And so what you do is either keep on dwelling on the thoughts that bother you or go ahead and do something else that's dumb. So it doesn't have much value in this. It's just a a self-perpetuating cycle. But the Buddha talked about wise reflection. And there's a, a wonderful... Um, discourse, advice to his son, Rahula, one of a number of discourses where he he gave teachings to his son. This one was when Rahula was seven years old and had just uh, recently joined the order. And he said, um, you know, sometimes you might get an idea that that might cause some suffering or it might cause some happiness. He says, when an idea comes, think about it if you can and see what it's going to lead to. He said, but sometimes you might have the idea and find yourself in the middle of the activity not realizing how you got there. He said, when you find yourself in the middle of an activity, reflect for a moment and see, is this going to lead to suffering or is this going to lead to happiness? And if it leads to suffering, then abandon it. If it leads to happiness, then continue it, cultivate it. Sometimes, he said, you might find yourself at the end of the activity, having done it, too late to stop. 
at that point, reflect, was this skillful or unskillful? Sometimes you might have the activity completed and well past it, you look back and you say, oh, was that skillful or unskillful? And he said, whenever you happen to notice, that's the time to begin to see the consequences of your actions. Not to dwell on how much you missed and how you did it again and again and again, but rather in that moment, start the meditation now, as we've said. At that moment, see, oh, okay, when I do this, this is how it feels. It doesn't feel so good. Maybe I should do it a different way. And if you can have a commitment to doing it, or at least an intention to doing it a different way, then your reflection will have served you. That's very different than guilt. Blake says, those who enter the gates of heaven are not beings who have no passions or who have curbed the passions, but those who have cultivated an understanding of them. We have these impulses that arise again and again, and we don't have much control over what comes through the mind. And so you don't need to take responsibility for the thoughts that come through. But where you do have some choice, as was talked about last night or the instructions today, is just noticing whenever you can what your intention is, what you want to create in your life. Just a moment's pause makes a tremendous difference in the way you live your life. And as you start to listen more carefully, you can, you can feel a bit when the body starts to contract or there's a little bit of uncertainty. Starting to listen more and more and getting a sense of those cues can save us from tremendous suffering and problems. The Tao Te Ching says, he who stops or knows when to stop will not meet danger. Just knowing when to stop and its intention is the key. I sometimes think of the, the meditation practice as learning to cultivate delayed gratification, which is something that we try to teach kids and that we try to learn ourselves throughout our life. You know, just hold off for a moment, you know. Don't go for the next ice cream cone right away. Or with the meditation, ah, here's a little pain. Rather than immediately moving, let's see if I can hang out with this for just a few moments. Not as a martyr, but just to see the possibility, ah, I can have a choice whether or not I want to move. Or when there's something delicious ahead of us, to just settle back and not be toppling forward. Going for the wholesome, the wholesome feeling, it generally is enhanced when you can wait rather than acting out of grasping or aversion. <clears throat> but as we see, sometimes we get caught up in our habits again and again. They have been practiced for long periods of time. And what it takes to break a habit is some intention, 
and some resolve. Came across a, a formula that, uh, that somebody gave for working with uh, unskillful habits that it seemed to make some sense to me. He says, if you really are in the middle of something that's gotten you and keeps on getting you and that's been very frustrating, he says, what seems to happen is over time there will be an accumulated unhappiness about it. And if you pay careful attention at some point or when you have reached this point of no return, there's an accumulated disgust that brings to a moment of truth. Maybe you get a diagnosis that says if you smoke another pack of cigarettes, your life might be in jeopardy or something akin to that, an outside moment of truth or maybe an internal moment of truth. This has caused me so much pain, it's time to change. And from that moment of truth, you practice a little bit. You start to have the intention to change your patterns. And as you change your patterns, little by little, little by little, then you might start to think of yourself in a different way. And you change your identity as somebody who's not always caught up in this. And as you start to think of yourself and see that possibility of changing your identity and and actually going a different route, it's very empowering. But he says, then you have to deal with the relapses because you might find yourself somehow in a weak moment or a moment of unclarity back again in that old space. Not to take it as a defeat, but just to see again one more time wise reflection, oh, I've got a different intention. We're all addicted to desire and aversion but there's a possibility of changing that. And the Buddha gave a beautiful image. He said, imagine a bucket under a faucet, a dripping faucet. Drop by drop, each drop doesn't look like it's doing much. But over time, drop by drop by drop, the bucket gets filled. So don't discount those moments of clear seeing or of intending to do things a different way or practicing doing it a different way. Making it a practice, especially when you see the force of purification that you're developing in your heart as you do it a different way and the, the, the joy that comes from feeling good about your actions, it's worth it. So Donna and Sila lead to good circumstances and also the possibility of hearing the Dharma. And that leads to the third one, bhavana, meditation. What we're doing here, practicing mindfulness, purifies the mind and the heart in a very powerful way. It brings the factors of awakening like investigation and energy and calm and concentration and equanimity into balance so that there can be a deep opening. 
And it's amazing to start to see even glimpses of that, of that possibility. Perhaps you've gotten a few glimpses of what it's like to really be here in the moment, in the present. Have you seen that a few times while you're here? Sometimes just learning that it's possible to land in the present moment. Wow, that's really neat. Where you're not doing anything, the moment is just happening and you're here being it, receiving it. This is from Shantideva. He says, As a blind person feels when they find a pearl in a dustbin, so am I amazed by the miracle of awakening rising in my consciousness. It is the nectar of immortality that delivers us from death, the treasure that lifts us above poverty into the wealth of giving to life, the tree that gives shade to us when we roam about scorched by life, the bridge that takes us across the stormy river of life, the cool moon of compassion that calms our mind when it is agitated, the sun that dispels darkness, the butter made from the milk of kindness by churning it with the Dharma. It is a feast of joy to which all are invited. So am I amazed by the miracle of awakening rising in my consciousness. It's so compelling. It's so compelling that when we experience it, just a few tastes of it, that supersedes all the other joys that we might have, at least for me. Wow, to really be fully alive, to really feel complete in this moment, to really have a heart or a mind that's pure, that's not wanting anything else, that has a natural expression of connection. And when we experience those glimpses, we see through that illusion of separateness. We see who we really are. There's been some talk about selflessness in these last nights, and it can be a little bit confusing. Some people have been kind of driving themselves crazy, saying, what does this mean? Or maybe have gotten a bit of a taste of it and say, oh my God, now what do I do? I want to just speak for a few moments on, on that issue. Because it used to drive me crazy too. You know? First, trying to figure out what it means that I don't exist. You know? Well, it sure feels that way to me that I do exist. You know? But maybe when I really get it, there will just be some kind of evaporation and I'll disappear. You know? which is scary, 
when I really get selflessness, ah, I don't exist, so I'm going to disappear. Have you noticed any kind of fear around that? You won't disappear. Because on one level, you are this body and this mind that has experiences and has a history and has a personality. And it doesn't mean that you don't exist. It's just one level of reality, the relative reality, the conventional reality, where I'm James and you're you, and we go about playing in our lives or taking them seriously, and it's real, and it needs to be honored. But when we see the larger picture, when we see that there's no place in us that we can point to as a fixed, unchanging place that is I. When we see that we are this process of mind and body and thoughts and feelings and emotions and constantly changing, then we feel we are connected with the whole life process around us. There's no separation then because the process is happening through all of us together. Right now, this room is just life experiencing itself through these many forms on the physical manifestation. And even below that, before things manifest, there's a place where it's all one. Like the Tibetans call the magical display of the physical plane. It's all magic. You know, how is it that I can be formulating some words in my mind and speaking them and having the vibration go through space and you hear it through your ear and have an image in your mind or something rings true to your heart. It's amazing, isn't it? It's magic. I don't know how that works. But on a deeper level, it is just this process playing with itself. You don't need to get rid of the sense of self. You don't need to get rid of that ego because it's just a creation in the first place that never was. It's a creation of mind, the sense that I am separate. But on a relative level, we are separate. Seeing ourselves as a process rather than as something, we can understand the fluidity of our lives. And there's not that same sense that we have to protect or puff up or accumulate. There's more of an ease and flow with our lives. The purification of that understanding comes from directly seeing, comes from in the moment of mindfulness when we see that we are not our thought. It comes and goes. 
that we are not the sensation. It comes and goes. We are not our moods. They come and go. And there's no place in there, there's no experience that we can have that we can point to and say, that is me. Brian Swim, who uh, is this uh, creation theologist and and physicist, uh, he says, we are a star's way of knowing itself. It's a beautiful image. We all came from that same star stuff, talking on a physical plane manifestation, and we have been given this spark of consciousness that can receive and transmit and know experience. But looking at it from a much bigger perspective, we can then play in our lives rather than taking them so seriously. This is uh, from Ajahn Amaro. He says, when the conceptual mind tries to grasp the ultimate reality, which can't be formed into a pattern, it finds that there is no thing there. The thinking mind says, well, what is it? How do you describe it? Where is it? Am I it? Am I not it? It gropes for some kind of handle. The thinking mind falls flat, just like trying to read a book in Chinese when one only knows English. The experience of ultimate truth can be described as emptiness, because to the conceptual mind, it has no form. But to the non-conceptual wisdom mind, the realization of truth is like the truth seeing itself. When there is no identification, no sense of self whatsoever, the mind rests pure and still, simply aware of its own nature. The Dharma, aware of its own nature, There is a realization that everything is dharma, but that realization is non-verbal, non-conceptual. So the conceptual mind calls it empty. But to itself, its real nature is apparent. It is understood. This is the source of our life, the basis of our reality. So, These are the forces of purification, dana, generosity, sila, virtuous conduct, and bhavana, meditation. And when I say meditation, I don't just mean sitting formal meditation, but practicing being present for our lives. And it's not just in the practice that we start to wake up. We have to remember the sila and the dhamma as well and all sorts of good virtuous conduct. I know a number of, and probably many people here, know a number of spiritual teachers or uh, great yogis who are caught in a lot of unskillful action that could cause great suffering. And until there's full enlightenment, there's more and more that we can open up to. And we need to look at the consequences of our actions. As Manindraji, wonderful teacher that 
as some of us have studied with, says, the Dharma protects those that protect the Dharma. And we can protect it in many ways. We can protect it in our conduct. We can protect it in our commitment to practice. We protect it mainly by by our sincere intention that we can bring to every moment. And this slowly but surely purifies our being and our journey and leads to real freedom, the highest freedom. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.